So as the, as the final Sunday, we will officially reflect on the Apostles' Creed. We're going to resolve some phrases this morning that we have yet to touch upon and specifically consider language that looks forward to our future. We've experienced how the Creed, it looks back to how we have been created and how we have been saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. We've also explored how the creed looks to our present, how we experience life in the spirit and in the church. And now we're going to look at how the creed looks forward. To that end, we're going to explore what it means to express the phrases, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we'll reflect on the language, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. With these words, the creed is looking forward to events that have not yet happened. The creed is inviting Christians to embrace a disposition of waiting and to consider what it is that we are ultimately waiting for. So some questions for you. What are you waiting for? What does it even mean to wait? Are you one of those people who's never really had to wait for anything? Or do you simply expect to get whatever you want right away? Are you the one who talks someone into telling you what you got as Christmas gifts? Or, or for your birthday? Do you pull open the wrapping paper on gifts because you just can't wait? Many of us can be impatient and reject a posture of waiting. The creed is affirming this is part of what Christians do. We wait. So, what does a Christian wait for? The creed is summarizing how there is a day that is promised in Scripture when Jesus will return, when our bodies will be glorified, and we will experience life everlasting. This is something that we are prone to forget. Yet it should transform the way we live day to day. A few weeks ago, we reflected on the fall and rise of Christ. We looked at that J curve, how Christ has rescued us from the power of sin and death. That, that is a victory that we have experienced. That win changes the way we live today. There is a promised future victory of Christ's return. This final win, it should change the way we live too. As a promised victory that's in the future, it is a win that is worth waiting for. This is our big idea this morning, a win worth waiting for. To explore this big idea and what the creed has to say about it, I want us to understand why this is a win worth waiting for. And then talk through some implications of what it means for us to wait as Christians. In exploring this language in the creed, we will not examine each and every passage of Scripture it reflects. There is simply not enough time that is beyond the scope of this sermon. We will primarily be rooting ourselves in one text found in the book of Revelation to understand this win worth waiting for. We are going to look at the end the final book in Scripture. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open it up to the passage read earlier, beginning with Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. 
Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So for those less familiar with the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, late in his life, he is offering some encouragement and some challenge and some hope to God's people. Many of them are experiencing persecution and hardship Difficult circumstances. They are watching brothers and sisters in Christ suffer, sometime, sometimes to the point of death. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John points his hearers to a future where God is renewing and making all things right. And part of what makes all things right is something called Judgment Day. When the evil one is punished and every man and woman who has ever lived will stand before the Lord to give an account. In drawing our attention to Judgment Day, John talks about a book that will be opened. And he uses the phrase, according to their works, to describe how men and women will stand before God and be judged. On one hand, this is good news if we long for justice. Let me explain. I was reading a story published last month of a 101-year-old man who had served as a guard in a Nazi concentration camp from 1942 to 1945. It seemed he had gotten away with what he had done, but he was found out. He was determined to be an accessory to countless murders and sentenced to prison at the age of 101. For those who long for justice, this is good news. Many want to consider past actions and say, that's water under the bridge. That was so long ago. But from a situation like this, we know evil being punished. Even if it is far into the future, it is a good thing. God's word tells us there is a day in the future when all the evil that has been done, it will be exposed and men and women will be judged. Evil will not get off scot-free. The challenge is anyone with a conscience knows there are evil deeds that we will all give an account for. We know the condition of our hearts we know what the Bible says is true. There is no one righteous, not even one. So contemplating Judgment Day, there is a fear or frustration that wells up in each of us because we know that if we are judged according to our works, we have much to give account for. We have much we are not proud of. In my own life, I have deep regrets and deep sadness over how I've treated others, how I've spent my time and money serving self rather than loving family and friends 
how I, I have harmed my wife and children at times, how I have gotten angry at others, even how I've hurt the church. Many want to minimize sin and deny that evil exists in our own hearts. Those aren't such bad things. But those of us awakened to the wickedness within, we know we have deep failures. Ways we have rejected God in his ways, standing before God, we all have much to give account for. But in addition to a book containing our works, John identifies a second book, the book of life. And he says the people in that book will be rescued from experiencing the consequences of their sin. This is a book of grace. People get what they do not deserve. The, the, the book of Revelation refers to this text actually in more than one place. And in chapter 13, there is a contrast that's made between two groups of people, the typical people on earth and those whose names are written in the book of life. All those who live on the earth will worship it. John is talking about people following the ways and works of the devil. All those who live on the, on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose names was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slaughtered. People who are not written in the book of life follow Satan. People in the book of life, they do not. Now, they are not identified by their good works. John associates them with the Lamb who was slaughtered meaning Jesus, who was sacrificed for their sins. Because Christ was sacrificed for them, they do not fear judgment. So in addition to a book that records all of our works, there is another that identifies people who will be saved, people who God will rescue and redeem. Rather than get what they deserve, they will get something they do not deserve. Life. When we profess, I believe, he will come to judge the living and the dead, this is a statement that produces fear in many. For those who want to argue with God's sense of justice, it even produces anger and resentment. But for God's people, it is a statement of provision and protection. Because where God's people have had to encounter the attacks of an evil sort, where God's people have had to endure the sorrow and sadness of others rejecting God in his ways, there is a day in the future when God's people will be pulled aside into a place marked by peace and prosperity. We will be free from attack. We will be free from those who would accuse and from those who would draw us away from loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is a day worth waiting for. John continues describing this future life at the beginning of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. 
They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because of the previous things have passed away. The new life that John is describing, it is remarkable. Where we have longed to experience the closeness of God, we will experience an intimacy with him beyond anything we have experienced. If you think of those moments when he has felt most near, maybe moments where you are singing with God's people, or praying before the Lord, or reading scripture, or enjoying the outdoors. Those moments, they will not compare with what we will experience in the new heavens and new earth, and where we have encountered personal suffering, situations of abuse, scenarios of neglect, being abandoned by loved ones, Bodies that are breaking down and decaying, watching loved ones slowly descend towards death, these will be no more. Those tears of grief that you shed, they will be put to an end. And so when we profess, I believe in the resurrection of the body, we are acknowledging today our bodies, they experience disease and decay. And there is a day where that will no longer be the case. Our bodies will no longer be marked by imperfections. But also, our our material bodies, they are not simply something to be freed from. That can be something that we forget as we experience bodies that are diseased and decayed and deformed. And as we experience physical illness and mental illness, our goal might be to start over. But rather than start over, what the creed is saying, what God's word, word communicates It's renewal. Our bodies are resurrected. They are made new. We talked about this some time ago, reflecting on 1 Corinthians 15 this spring. So we don't need to to get into great detail. The big thing, our bodies will be renewed, not discarded. Our bodies are good. And because Christ rose from the dead, we know we will rise from the dead. Our body will one day be where Jesus now is. Our body will be in his presence. This is a day worth waiting for. When we profess, I believe in life everlasting, we are affirming that Jesus has defeated death. The Spirit, in giving us life, invites us into eternal communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I think a number of you know that I spend time working part-time a couple days a week at a nursing home. I exercise my license as a physical therapist. So I was talking to a resident there this week about how scientists are now saying there is a baby that has been born that will live to be 150 years old. The individual I was working with, she said, you know what, I wouldn't want to live that long. Often when we consider life everlasting, We're thinking in earthly terms. Living forever does not seem all that attractive. What the creed is saying in using the language life everlasting, it is not simply referring to avoiding death or surviving forever. So there are two Greek words for life. Bios means biological existence. 
That is breathing, eating, and surviving. None of us want to simply survive. The second word is zoe. It means life in all its fullness. If you think about those moments you most enjoy, where you have delighted in God's creation, moments eating delicious food, moments taking a hike outdoors, moments enjoying a good book, moments where you laugh in the presence of others, that's life everlasting. More than giving you life where you survive, God is giving you a life where you thrive. That is a day worth waiting for. This story of what Christians wait for, rescue and deliverance, it should be familiar to many. Today we love stories of rescue and deliverance where good triumphs over evil. I mean, Eric mentioned movies that are epic in nature. I'm going to go a little bit different direction because there are blockbuster movies of mainstream culture. Star Wars. Not an, maybe it's an epic. The, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, MCU, right? Harry Potter. I know some of these stories can be cheesy and unrealistic. No one's going to be as strong as Thor. No one will have as much personal integrity as Captain America. No one will spend their wealth flying around the world in a suit to protect others like Iron Man. At least I don't think that's a direction Elon Musk is going. <laughs> Stories of superheroes are fantasy. But there is a reason that many of us are attracted to a hero defeating an evil villain. We know the world we live in, it is broken. Stories of superheroes express a longing for someone to come who has strength and power, who uses it for the good of others. This is a story that is familiar to many of us. Frank Turek is a Christian author that has recently written about how current stories of heroes point to the ultimate hero. Listen, we may not realize it, but the stories and heroes that thrill us in the theater are simply amped up, fantasized version, versions of the struggle between good and evil that happens in real life. Some of it is in the unseen realm, and some of it we see clearly. We long for another world that we were really made for, and we are enchanted by someone who will bring us there, someone who will fight for evil and bring us safely to a world where there is no pain, suffering, or struggle. Hollywood heroes help us yearn for what Jesus will do to finally set things right when he comes again. So Christian, this is your license to enjoy stories of rescue and deliverance as they awaken in us and express our longing for ultimate rescue and deliverance. To the non-Christian, let me say, the Bible is the story of the ultimate hero coming to redeem his people. Is this story simply pretend like all the others? Is it fantasy or is it something else? Turek is saying God has wired us to long and to wait and to desire this future win. We recognize the brokenness of the world we live in and we long for justice. We long to be rescued and delivered. Our longing for rescue and redemption, for good to triumph over evil, it is a longing for something that has happened 
when Christ delivered sinners like you and I, and it is a longing for something that will happen, a future victory when evil will be punished and God's people will be protected and they will experience peace and prosperity. That is a win worth waiting for. Will you investigate the claims of Christianity or will you assume it's a pretend story like all the others? We Christians, we take the the claims of the Bible seriously. We look at the world around us and we long for another home. This is what Christians wait for. So now that we have outlined this future win worth waiting for, I want want to talk through some implications of what it means to be a people who wait. What you are waiting for transforms the way you live today. The, The way you experience life moment by moment, how you spend your time, how you relate to others, how you pray, how you spend your money, what you wait for transforms how you experience various moments in life. Let me give you a couple illustrations. Uh, So I grew up riding the bus. Yeah. I actually grew up riding the bus with one of our members, Andrea Miller. Um, Her and I grew up a a few country blocks apart, although I am a little older. Our bus driver was named Maxine. Maxine was tough. She would travel the gravel roads around Plattsmouth. She would rocket around the turns. I'm pretty sure she would sometimes get that bus fishtailing at the speeds she was able to achieve with that bus. We got to school and we got there on time, even if it was a little traumatic. (laughs) I think it's why to this day, if you're riding with me, I'm driving. You're not driving, I am. Well, I had to walk onto a different street where the school bus would pick me up. Uh, some, some kids, I know the school bus picks them up at their driveway, the bus pulls up, honks, the student hops out of their door into the bus. They don't wait. I had to wait. So sometimes the bus was on time, often it wasn't. Waiting was not easy. But because I knew the bus would come, it transformed how I spent those few minutes. If I was uncertain the bus was coming, you would certainly not find me looking up the hill, waiting for it to come over the horizon. I wasn't standing there for no reason. I wasn't standing there to get a tan. I wasn't standing there on a cold day to freeze my fingers off. I was at the bottom of the hill, looking up, preparing for the arrival of that bus. Understanding what I was waiting for provided clarity to how I engaged my current circumstances. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller affirms the importance of understanding what you are waiting for. Here's what he says. I was reading a story some years ago about two men who were captured and thrown into a dungeon. Just before they went into prison, one man discovered that his wife and child were dead, and the other learned that his wife and child were alive and waiting for him. In the first couple of years of imprisonment, the first man just wasted away, curled up, and died. But the other man endured and stayed strong and walked out a free man ten years later. Notice that these two men, they experienced the very same circumstances, but responded very differently. Because while they experienced the same present, 
they had their minds set on different futures. It was the future that determined how they handled the present. What are you waiting for? I'm not asking what you think you should be waiting for. As you consider how you're living, what do you think you're really waiting for? What you're really waiting for will orient your current reality. It is not your current circumstances. Your view of the future, what you are waiting for, determines how you engage with the present. If what you're waiting for is the prosperity of your family, you'll work and center your entire existence around making that happen. You will give and give and give to them. You will participate in in church because that may be good for them, but you will not live for Christ and his future glory. If what you're waiting for is peace and quiet, if something disrupts that, you're bound to get angry and frustrated. If what you're waiting for is an existence free from suffering, you will not be able to deal with sadness. You will escape through substances or seeking some earthly status in the workplace or in the affirmation of someone who will temporarily give it to you. If you're a parent, you will bulldoze problems for your kids. When you are waiting for particular earthly circumstances, when you get them, you will be satisfied temporarily. But when you do not get them, your mood and your mindset, they will easily be swayed. If you are oriented to ultimately wait for earthly things rather than eternal things, it will affect the way you live. You will seek refuge rather than your Redeemer. What are you waiting for? Here's Revelation 21.5. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Some of us forget this is ultimately what we are waiting for. Rather than waiting for the return of Christ and life everlasting, we are waiting for other things. As a Christian, you are waiting for your Redeemer. You are waiting for your ultimate deliverance. Knowing this will change the way you relate to current circumstances. So how does that waiting How does waiting for the return of Christ shape the way we live? As we wrestle with that question, we should clarify for a moment what waiting is and what waiting is not. For for many, waiting is viewed as a negative characteristic. Rather than work, which we tend to think is a good thing, someone waits. A competitive expression, winners aren't waiting. Winners don't wonder what will happen. Winners make things happen. I want to be clear, the waiting the creed, the, 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 the waiting that the creed is inviting us into, it is not passive. It is more like the actions of a farmer who plants seed and prepares, who recognizes that there is a day in the future when the harvest will happen. That is a day that the farmer must wait for. A farmer does not have apathy towards current circumstances The farmer longs for for the day of harvest. The same is true for the Christian. 
Waiting is not wondering. Waiting does not give us license to live however we want. That's not the waiting of a farmer. That's not how I waited for the bus. Waiting is living in light of what you expect to happen. And so waiting empowers us to work, to share the gospel with others, to be about living for the new heavens and new earth. So so to properly wait, there is actually a disposition of discontent that must be adopted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a book compiled after his death in a Nazi concentration camp. It's actually an Advent devotional, right? That's the season in the church calendar when we reflect on what it means to be a people who waited for the first coming of Christ and look forward and wait for his second coming. In it, he describes what it means for a Christian to wait. Not everyone can wait. Neither the sated, nor the satisfied, nor those without respect can wait. The only ones who can wait are people who carry restlessness around with them. And people who look up with reverence to the greatest in the world. Thus, Advent can only be celebrated by those whose souls give them no peace, who know they are poor and incomplete, and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come. If what you're waiting for is the return of Christ, for the glorification of your body, a day when all things will be made new, you will be discontent with life on earth. You will be hungry and thirsty for something different. You will not be satisfied or content with earthly things, not in a sinful or grumbling sort of way, not in a way that is centered on self, but in a way that you recognize the significance of sorrow and sadness in the world. You you will recognize you were made to long for something different, and you were saved for something different. I've talked to a number of people at times in the past in a variety of contexts about a couple quotes from Pastor John Piper that shed light on a Christian disposition of waiting. If I've shared with you them too much, I apologize for the redundancy. I think it's him who says, Christians should be some of the happiest people on earth. Because we know God has secured a past victory for us. And God has a promised victory in in the future for us. So we have much to rejoice in. We should be the happiest people on the face of the earth. But he also says that Christians should be some of the saddest people on the face of the earth. Because we see how broken the world is. We see how it's not as it's supposed to be. Some Christians would deny the significance of suffering saying the Christian life should be easy. Some would embrace a form of teaching called the prosperity gospel, saying that when God's favor rests on you, you should experience relief from pain and suffering. Such a teaching is a distortion of God's word. The Bible is saying that Christians look to the future rather than to earthly circumstances for ultimate rescue and deliverance. We may experience a taste of that today. But we do not wait for what we experience today. We do not wait to experience circumstantial peace and prosperity. We wait for a future peace and prosperity. And so when we profess, I believe he will come to judge the living and the dead, and I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, our orientation for rescue and relief is not so much in the present 
but rather in the future. It's a win worth waiting for. So when others ridicule you for your faith, when others reject you because of your views that are rooted in biblical Christianity, when others entice you to sin, where you have been harmed by others, where you have been hurt by others, where you have been deceived with false promises, you are free to grieve, free to be restless, because you know things are not as they should be. But you also have a confidence knowing that evil has not gone unnoticed. The Lord is making things right. There is a day when people will give an account for the evil things they have done to you. Those actions will not go unpunished. God is bringing you into a place where you will be protected from evil. And so you and I, we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. When you know others who do not know Christ, who have not surrendered to the lamb who was slaughtered, you grieve. You beg God for their salvation. You seek out opportunities to share the gospel with them. You long to tell them about Jesus. You want to be united with them at the end of days. We long for them to surrender to Christ. When your body is decaying and breaking down, where you have experienced disability and deformity, when you are no longer able to walk around the block, as you encounter the effects of depression, the effects of disease, you are free to grieve because things are not as they should be. But you have peace in the Lord knowing that he will one day renew your body. He will not discard you. He is not starting over and he will not simply sustain. Your renewed body will thrive and you will experience life everlasting. Your body will one day be free from pain so you are excited for this renewed body and you long for Christ to return. And when you encounter sorrow and sadness in the world, when you lose your home, when your car is broken, when someone you love has let you down, when you lose a loved one to death, when you see children suffering, you are free to grieve. You are free to be discontent. You are free to be restless because things are not because things are not as they should be. Yet, because you sense something of the greatness that is to come, you are excited and filled with joy. You anticipate a day when there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more grief and no more death. And so you long for that day and you pray, come Lord Jesus. So how does what a Christian waits for shape the way you live? You are oriented not towards self, but you are oriented towards Christ's return. When you wait for his return, you will do anything, not for yourself, but for your king. You will live to glorify him. You will want to tell others about him. You will live for that. I want you to consider this morning, what does your life testify to what you are waiting for? In the midst of challenging circumstances, in the midst of what often feels like chaos, are you trusting in a future redemption and rescue? Are you longing and waiting for that? Are you impatient? 
simply looking for earthly relief. God's word points us to a future rescue that will be sweet and final. It is a win worth waiting for. As we wait, we grieve, we are restless, we long for something different, and we pray, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.